0: I'm really happy to host this conversation today with my colleagues, uh, two of the authors and founders of the Event Design Collective, as, as you mentioned. Uh, Rule and Root will share some of the insights and mindsets that led to the creation of this book uh, with their colleagues, Dennis Laura and Paul Rilkins. I want to start with the book. Uh, there's an opening line in the book that says, A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would you leave it to chance? And that's an interesting thing to explore, and I think there's a big rabbit hole we can go down there. Um, But when I think about shifting direction and change, one of my favorite things about this book is what I mentioned earlier about it being an omni-channel experience. And what I like in particular was this book was created by an event. From from that sort of uh, omni-channel experience, from inception all the way through to the continuum that's just starting now. Ruhl, can you share with the audience what led you to embark on this journey to create a book such as this?
1: Yeah, thank you, Anthony.
0: Thank you for the introduction.
1: Um, what we, yeah, it probably doesn't surprise you that this uh, this book, as our last book, um, came from an event. Um, and we, but let me, let me take you one step back. Uh, we trained over 500 people, EDC, Event Design Certificate, Program Level 3. And I see some certified event designers are in the, in the room today. Uh, Welcome everybody and welcome everyone. After having trained three day um, programs over 30 cohorts, we've spoken to 500 plus people uh, very extensively and we help them to master something called event design using the event canvas methodology. So facilitating that, designing events. So. In those in those three day programs, we had those those conversations, and people had had uh, have learned to facilitate the event design. But then they said, like, oh, I'm I'm struggling to get that in in my organization and make it relevant to my event owner. And um, after a few years, um, we were still thinking, or like, let's let's write a book about it. Let's explain that in in more detail. And then the pandemic hit us, and then we said to each other, like, we can now all uh, be sad, um, because we all of a sudden we had 80 plus days, where we didn't travel. Um, and we said, like, let's, in a few years time, let's look back at the pandemic and say, like, that is the time when we wrote this book. So we did the s- second version of our mastermind program, EDC mastermind program, in November 2020, where we had a, quite a big cohort of people uh, attending that class. And it was all about conversations, to how to have that conversation with your event owner. And we actually decided to use that event, that mastermind program, as a deadline for ourselves to push ourselves to make that book ready. And then we presented that book in draft, in PDF, to the to that cohort. But that what they, what they didn't know is that between uh, the, the second and the third day, the book landed in their mailbox in a draft version, in a very limited edition draft version. So, and th- that cohort helped us to read along, spot. Spot the differences. Look at look at errors we made. Look at thought processes which were not not clear, and then those uh, people helped us to to refine uh, the work we've done. And that's a, that's how that's a story about the book and how the book came to life. And literally last week the book was hot off the press and um,
0: landed in our warehouse. Amazing. Rude. Let's let's step back to that that question. A good conversation can shift the direction of change forever. Would yes. you leave it to chance? What does that mean for you? Not if you join MPI.
1: Uh, <laughs> let, me,
2: let me wind back a long time ago, back to, I, I think, like the beginning of this century, uh, the 21st century, when I joined MPI, actually a little bit before that. And actually, one of the reasons that Will and I met each other, although we were born probably in a village where we lived three streets apart, not knowing it, MPI connected us through the Dutch chapter, and later we were involved with MPI, also on the international board. And we ran into tons of different people that were super interesting. And so MPI, somehow the conversations that we've been having on and off, right, with many different people, somehow influence the direction of change. And I'm sure each of you can think about whether it's a mentor in school or a teacher that you had or a person that you met somewhere, you make strong memories when a conversation shifts your direction of change. You remember those people. Because this is like... It's practice ground. You end up having opinions about things. And one of the things we had opinions about was events. No coincidence, I guess. Um, but also that there is there are some events which are phenomenal. There are many events that are, let's say, mediocre at best. But there's a vast, vast amount of events that actually uh, enormous time suck off people. So they, they literally take so much time without being maybe the way they could be and instead of complaining about that Rule and i decided to do something about that and so we started thinking along the lines of how could you create a mental model which was inspired by a meeting we actually had at wc in vancouver in 2010 with alex osterwalder where we thought about the business model canvas and then we created the event canvas and we got to launch that at wc in minneapolis in 2014 and we started writing a book First, a facilitation kit. Then we created a book called The Event Design Handbook in 2016. MPI invited us to do the launch at the Thought Leadership Summit, also in Vegas. And one thing leads to the the other. So do we leave it to chance? You don't know what's going to happen, but you don't leave it to chance. And I think this is what hopefully we can practice today. Maybe just to clarify one more thing is we're going to have like 45 minutes on stage, but the total session is an hour and a half. So the last 45 minutes. We're going to go off stage, all of us, and then people can contribute. We'll have the conversation and make it really nice and messy. All right? So we're here to break some rules. If we don't break anything, we're not experimenting hard enough. It's one of the two things we do. At the event that Ruhl mentioned, the EDC Mastermind, we also balance, balance analog and digital 50-50. Uh, that's why you will see us showing pictures from books or on screens or whatever we can get our hands on. Last thing that we should not forget is that If you decide to speak up also in the offstage part you may be part of a podcast which we have just launched called the design to change podcast because this session is a reverse podcast recording and we'll tell you more about that at the end back to you anthony
0: okay well let's let's jump in uh without any further ado i'd like to explore one of the concepts that's in chapter one of the book and look at this idea of horizons of change Rule, could you perhaps give us a bit of an insight, just very quickly, one minute, because they can read the book, but one minute about what, what, what do you mean when you say horizons of change? And then, to the to both of you, what is on your horizon? What horizons of change are coming up for you? Rule is oh, on mute. He told me I would do that, and there you I'm go. Mute. That, <laughs> Thank that, that you. got we need, you. We need <laughs>
2: the mug. We need the mug. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank
1: you. Hey, I
2: think you did that on purpose. Yeah,
1: did that on purpose. yeah absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> Break things, right? Yeah. So, so the horizon of change, right? Change is, as you might know, a noun and a verb. And, and using that, there's the verb we, we talk about, like the process of change. And in the noun, we talk about the result of, of change, right? This is this is what change is and, and and how it looks. And as we just showing that on the screen. So uh, looking at the horizon of change is we first ask ourselves, why is that so, why is that so, so why is everybody else so reluctant to change? Why is, why is that? And then we also help people in that, in this chapter a little bit more to, to zoom out and see the full um, scope of what change can be. Looking at the past, looking at the current situation, look at trends. So to zoom out to anticipate on on what the future might look like. And I think if you can position yourself, but also your event and how I would would looks I would look to the past and how it will look in the, in the future, that is actually actually what, what 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 horizons of change help you do.
0: Awesome. Perhaps some examples might be nice to dig into this. You know, we talked about the relationship with MPI and, and funnily enough, I think the three of us met through MPI as well. And I've seen some names in the audience that I met through MPI and through, through the programs with MPI. Rude, can you sort of give us a bit of an idea of what were some of those horizons that you went through over, you know, some of those changes that occurred? Were there pivotal moments that you can now look back at and go, OK, those were the horizons that we faced in the past? Yeah, and I think I named a couple of them in the intro, right? So,
2: the fact that we decided to volunteer for MPI in the Netherlands—you know, who was taking charge of, like, doing the Netherlands conference, which, funnily enough, in 2019 ended up being a European conference, right? Many years later, and be a very, you know, be an award-winning event, completely designed by the community, flipped on its head. So, things happen for a reason over time, and only in hindsight can you understand how and why they happened. So they are they are easy to see in the past, but they're complex to analyze when they're happening. So our first perimeter was like on the domestic scale in the country, in the chapter, we were you know really geared up to do that. And then we started to expand our horizon to an international kind of perspective. And we've been faithful and loyal WC visitors, I think over the years. Um, we've had the opportunity actually to go to Vegas over the past two years, I think more than we've ever been before. Um, we ran into Amanda Armstrong, who was a part of our first cohort. Um, who at some point was it at? It was at IMAX Americas, I think it was. She introduced us to Lisa Messina, who will be one one of the panels for. She's a vice president of sales for uh, Caesar's Entertainment. And for those of you that are on site, you know you're going to visit the Caesar's Forum that was due to open last year, and the opening was designed using the Canvas. So these things all have a sense of purpose. I think, and in hindsight, you can see the pivotal moments. So if you put the brains of multiple people together and you think of the future behavior of a group of other people, it's amazing what you can come up with, right? It's also amazing what you need because you need a committed team of people that are able to do that together and do it systematically over and over again to come to good results. And then they create stories, events create stories. Some events are so story rich, they turn into books. And that's what happened here. So uh, it wasn't that the book came after the event. We actually had the book as the thing that was in our head for five, six years and we birthed it. And when, when three guys together need to birth a book, the first time it was a painful exercise. The second time, right, we learned from the first time. right. So we didn't leave things to chance. We had raw conversations. We expressed our ideas. We created the delta and that kind of visual frame that people may recognize on the cover, right? The delta is there for a reason, but the delta actually represents the change. The delta, the triangle, is the triangle of change. And that's, that became our kind of three, three-pronged kind of thing to articulate what change is and how it works. So yes, in
0: hindsight, nothing was coincidental maybe, but it happens for a reason. And by the sounds of it, you know, there was a lot of change. We've kind of, it covers this in the book, change is inevitable. Uh, and incremental and easier to see in retrospect. But really, I love that idea of looking at the horizon in front of you and understanding how can I be proactive in that change with that with, with consciousness. Now, I'm going to break that completely. Uh, and, and I'm going to say, all right, well, let's not control the next bit of change that's going to come in. I want to dig deeper into this book and I want to bring some chance into it if it's OK with you and with the audience. So, um, audience, perhaps give us in the chat, let us know. Would you like us to get a bit risky here and throw caution to the wind and follow chance rather than design? OK, I'm getting it. Oh, yes, please, please, please. OK, so what we're going to do is we're going to spin the wheel to explore the wheel. this book a bit deeper and take a look at what are the different chapters representing. So let's see what comes up first here. Round and round it goes. And we are gonna start with an important one. Wants versus needs. Okay, so we're gonna pick out the sections from within the workbook that, uh, that goes with each of the chapters. I'm gonna put the questions into the chat. I would love you to contribute to those chats. But to begin with, I am going to uh, bring up the question to wants versus needs. Ruhl, when was the last time you identified a gap between the want and the need?
1: Let me give you a very simple answer. When I had a big headache, I uh, went to the doctors and asked for painkillers. I said, oh, he said, that's what that's what you want, right? But I have an obligation to think think a little bit more, ask some questions, and based on those questions, give you some medicine or not. Right, so that's my my want is I want painkillers, and I, I came back with something else. Right, so that's what I actually needed. So, and in that in that uh, circumstance, that's easy to to remember. The a, a want is a self-expressed need, and it doesn't it doesn't really tell you what that person really needs. Digging from that want to the need, that is what we explain in this chapter. Right, so that and why it's why does it, that is important and of course it is abundantly clear in the in the in the example of the doctors that that is something he is trained to do and that's super important that, that this person is trained to do because that lives are at stake but you can also compare the ones and the needs to the long long term and the short term right wants are much more short term like like bad bad habits are but needs are much more geared towards the good habits which were which actually evolve from the long-lasting benefits uh, somebody is after. So, a way to to come from wants versus needs, because that's not an easy exercise, is to dig deeper, ask the why question, but also summarize what you what you hear and try to to have a, a, a conversation to get to that what that person really wants, and we, we're speaking about the event owner in this case, right? So we would like to help our event owner to get better solutions for their problem or the challenge they might have. Actually bringing solutions to their wants could be totally off to the solutions you might bring uh, if you know their need, right? So that, that is, that is something uh, we, we often see go wrong. And we would like to help our readership, but also our people uh, who are um, attending our programs, uh, our event design certificate programs, to become better at digging deeper, getting to the, the real need instead of the self-expressed
0: want. Rude, anything to add on that? You, wh- what was the last time that you identified a gap between the wants and the needs? Oh,
2: just <clears throat> just today. This happens all the time. I think in, pre- in, in preparation for this session, I, I realized that, you know, we have each a prefrontal cortex anticipating that something's going to go a certain way and we have an understanding, even if you do collaborate often with each other. But this is to me, a good collaboration between wants and needs also has to do with trust and with a sense of like experience together, I would say, right? So you get to know each other. The Germans call that Kennenlernen, right? The hardest kind of learning is the people learning. And there was one the day before. Let me give you that example. I'm an amateur alporn player. I used to play the trumpet in a jazz quintet. And in my jazz quintet, I used to know my piano player, the bass player, the drummer, the saxophone player really, really well. And we would look at each other with a half eye and we would understand where we're headed next, because that's the kind of collaboration you build, just like we have in our team. When you start playing a new instrument like the alporn, last Monday, we were having an outside performance and... Normally, this starts at 8.30 and finishes an hour and a half later, and then you're gone. But one person took the initiative to say, let's do this outside. I'm going to bring two of my friends, who we're going to cook and have a barbecue, and we're going to ask everybody to bring Chip in something. And this turned into an event that we long didn't have. So all it takes is one person to see that what we wanted was just to play for an hour and a half. But what we needed was to get together and have a meal and have a conversation and spend time together beyond just making music. Um,
0: and can you share any other parallels that you see between, between how music is created and experienced and just events in general? Yeah.
2: The, the analogy I love a lot, it's not just an analogy, it's a truth, right? So <clears throat> we all have eight notes to, chose, to choose from if you don't choose the chromatics, right? And look at all the music that came out of Spotify and all the other stuff we had before. Uh, It's endless right in the mid 80s. There's a very famous YouTube clip I recommend everyone to watch it where Herbie Hancock Explains to a bunch of kids on Sesame Street He gives them a microphone he samples one of their voices and on a computer with a very strange thing connected to a wire in 1984 uh, he samples the sound and starts playing it on a keyboard and the kids are blown away, but immediately start sparking how they could use this to make more songs. Most people would be daunted and would fall back off their chairs saying, but that's not music, it's digital. It's made by a computer. To me, that's exactly what's happening to events, right? Only 35 years later. Uh, we're in that very same kind of digital revolution that music was in, in the mid eighties. And yes, I don't like all of the music. I appreciate all of it and how it's being made. And my kids might have a different preference from what I have. And we might choose different tracks or playlists on Spotify or whatever we use as a family. But I was very rewarded some time back when my family said, the best gift we got from you so far was the family Spotify accounts. And that was a digital gift, by the way. Right. I I didn't know the other thing, but the gift of music, that's pretty powerful. Let's flip that to events, right? How can we use that thinking? in digital events and analog and digital, how do we combine these things? I think it's super powerful. We've
0: got some great stuff coming into the chat. Uh, We're looking at, okay, so so, uh, we hold an annual skills competition for our employees across the country. The want of the executive was to remove employees who continuously win. I get it, focus on those, right? But the real need was getting new and different employees involved to further the overall goal of the event, which was that employee retention side of things. Any thoughts on that, gents? Do you think? How do you feel about that? Yeah. As a want versus need? Yeah, so I,
1: I think it's a very, very good one. Let me give you an, a few examples of of how you can get to from a want to a need, and how what kind of conversations do you uh, want to ask? Because telling people that they that they want is actually not their need telling what they need is not actually it's actually what they want and not what they need that is that is something co- which could be confrontational and there are some a f- few questions also in our book and there's there's a, there's a few more how you can get to to that ultimate need and one of the questions you could ask is for instance how did you realize this uh, this is what you want so digging into what that want exactly is or maybe is there a problem you can identify that you are trying to solve? So these kind of questions will will trigger something which, which is behind their want. A want is actually a first manifestation of a need. Right? It's it's something which needs to be dug into, and I think that's that's what what what, what, this, uh, what this chapter is about. It's a skill you need to possess. It's a skill you need to uh, develop also, in in how to do that in a very uh, tactical way. So it's not for, for making me look better as a, as a, as an event designer, but to, to get, to get the the event owner, what he or she really needs. I, uh, I love the example that the
2: annual skills competition where the executive says we should remove those that have a really high skill level because it's help. you know, it's great to recognize their skills, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't help the others cover the gap analogy that pops to head is. And I'll, and I'll show this little book here, written by our colleague Dennis Lyer. If you look at any of the visuals that are coming out of our, let's say, uh, materials or that, that you might see left and right, it's because we have a, a wizard on board. His name is Dennis, and he's a wizard with the pen. Not just an analog, but also in digital. <clears throat> he wants everyone to draw, but his skill level in drawing is so high that if he starts drawing, everybody else stops to draw. It's one of the worst kind of paradoxes in his existence and um, he does create tools and materials to stimulate other people to draw and to color in and, and this is part of what we did with IMAX um, america i think when we had the the two-sided drawing out change for connecting to behavior change from the experience side or from the instructional side so it's a two-sided book with the ability to articulate change in drawings why does that prompt that question because i think what your executive expressed there is a very powerful observation of the fact that skills alone is not enough in your instructional designs, you need to think of the attitude. What does it do to other people? What's the knowledge that you get to acquire along the way and who needs to get to know each other in the mix of your experience journey, which is exactly that timepiece in the middle of the event canvas that we need to address. Some people say what they want and they get their way because they're the head honcho and people just say oh you want that okay i'll do that for you now event design will equip you and this is what we try to get out of these conversations is the ability to be a trusted advisor and do that on a peer level so you you level the question and i think this is what we really need to do with wants and needs is dig beyond that first want that rule was saying and bring it up to the need dig deeper because then you will be taken much more seriously And the
0: conversation will just be better. So I threw into the chat one of the questions from the workbook, what check-in questions will you ask to verify understanding? I'm going to throw another one in perhaps now because I think the follow-on one's pretty good where we look at what questions will you ask to help you identify the value distance? How do we balance the nurturing... The executive to recognise their need versus they want against having the authority and the being being having enough power to have them listen to you. Is that something that we could explore?
1: Yeah, I think the value lies in many 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 ways in so so value is the key word here, right? So and the value distance as well. One of the things you you could you think of is the event you're designing or and planning is from probably next season. One of the things you could ask yourself: So, how did how would that event look three years from now, right? So, looking at what is the direct want, can you can you make sure we have that event next year? But in order to get to down to the needs, it's also crucial to to paint that picture of horizon of change we just addressed in the in the first part, and and look at look at the horizon and look three years from now or five years from now. And ask those questions, right? Ask the question, like, what is the value you see in the, in the future? And how can, how how might this next event get us there? Right? So I think when people talk about um, strategic um, event strategy, or I think strategy in this case is not more or less than putting the event into the perspective of time, right? So put them, put them on the timeline timeline, looking back what, what the event has uh, produced so far. Uh, what behavior change they they created, and what how it'll look in the future. So that is that is what what we we, we see as ways to to come from a, a a direct want to a to a
0: potential need. And these questions could be could help you. Uh, let me play devil's advocate here, and I'll be the executive, and I'll say I've told you what I want. Now just give me the event. Um, how how can without rushing to the solution, providing solutions to that executive that is, you know, under considerable pressure and is certainly, you know, wants an outcome from it. How how do you manage expectations that you will be giving them options later, but there is a need for discovery at this stage?
2: I think what's really important is how you confident you are in the system you use to be able to do something systematically, right? If you do everything off the cuff all the time and you don't know what the outcome is of what that is, or if you're not able to articulate that if that is the want of that event owner and they're not considering which other stakeholders they need to delight, those that have high power, high interest over achieving a bigger goal an overarching aim. In 2017, one of the MPI team members came to our ADC program and she had a year's window to kind of design an event for Indianapolis in 2018. And she brought the project to the program and it got selected and was worked through. And then Team MPI went and designed the event with the team in Dallas. And what was interesting is that when we were on site at that event, you could do two things, just sit there and enjoy the event, but we rolled up our sleeves and decided to take action towards what could this event look like in 2022? So if you think four years ahead, did we know there was going to be a pandemic in 2020, 2021? No, we didn't. But I'm sure that if you if you if you procrastinate and don't think about the future, it's going to hit you in the face. And what you need to do is spend a little bit of time to forward cast and think further down the line and dream up what it could look like in a relatively rough resolution. Because if you are prepared with those kinds of conversations and you have an anchor towards the future overarching aim, then you are seen as a trusted advisor as a peer and not as the person that does events there's nothing wrong with doing events because they're super complicated as melinda at mpi likes to say they are controlled explosions and there, you know these next couple of days at the caesars forum and online there's a controlled explosion going on within the perimeter of all of our mpi friends who are part of this event but the controlled explosion has a boundary this is how far we can this is where we draw the line It's just like building a tunnel, you leave the explosions to the experts that know about explosives, but our tunnel goes that way and we want to come out the other end of the mountain, or we have to go over the mountain and go down the other end, then you need Sherpas and other tools, but both require preparation and different types of training, but that's what it's all about. I think it's about being readier or being ready to ask the readiness question. And if you're not. Uh, challenge the fact that if you're going to consume an obscene amount of time of people to come to an event and you're not thinking about it enough from multiple stakeholder perspectives, that's a cardinal sin
1: in wasting people's time. Can I add, add to that, Anthony? Yeah. One thing I'd like to share also from, the, from my drawing, which is actually, I, I might spill the beans on, on your next spin of the wheels, <laughs> but, but I think it's, it, it fits in this kind of in this conversation. Where we actually offset what you what you can see here in, in the squiggle in the spaghetti, you see. And that's sp- that, that spaghetti is actually that symbolizes design thinking, event design uh, thinking, or event design doing, as we as we like to call it. And you can offset that against the, the, the straight arrow from you no know, from here to here, right? It's a mirror. And actually you can compare those, right? From going from, from, from a problem to a solution, either through a straight, straight line. Um, without blinking of the eyes, really, really fast, fast solution production. Or you could say, let's explore the problem a little bit more while we dig into the fuzzy front end. We start to frame it. We're going to create some prototypes. We will present you those prototypes, right? That was the question you asked in terms of like, how can you actually manage the expectation of the event owner to giving options at a later time that you say like we would would like to f- do first a, a thorough analysis the stakeholders and the behavior changes to frame that a little bit and then to present you some prototypes. Would you be willing to to listen to them? We need your we need an hour of your time. Um, in two weeks from now, right? So, and that is, that is actually giving clarity to the event owner, what he or she can expect from the design team, because you in that fuzzy front end in that spaghetti in the, in the beginning, what you need is team, right? a, a team of people like five to eight, eight people. You need, time, that, that goes like for, for, for a serious event. That is, let's say from one to three days of, of design time. And space, right? You need either a physical space where you can put posters on the wall and use use um, make it really messy with, with post-its. So the team, the time, and the space, if, as long as you have those resources and you master the skill of facilitation of the event design uh, methodology, you can help the, the organization go through that design phase. And help that, that organization end up here, right, at the overarching aim, and also to make a, the the event, uh, which is symbolized by the little tent there, make it relevant to the the overarching aim. And that is that is typically where event owners like to look a little bit further. And as soon as you can now relate that event to the over, overarching aim, then uh, you are potentially have all ear. But well,
2: that's in the ideal world, right? Where People don't have duct tape and they try all sorts of stuff that go wrong first. So in this this ideal world of let's explore the problem, right? If you would have asked Einstein that said, if you give him an hour of time to explore uh, the problem, to address a problem, then I would spend 98% of the time analyzing the problem and 2% coming up with an answer. Mm -hmm. And this is exactly the spaghetti that we're talking about. But sometimes you first have to feel the pain, right? And that pain could be that, you know, there's this, water hose of you know stuff that's actually happening here in the event and you're trying to plug the hole and people are blaming each other and it doesn't work and this that and the other and then you say and stop okay let's stop for a minute spend some time thinking about what this looks like in the future and then you start going into the problem and exploring it the way that rule explained it there so it's never a wrong time to address that with your event owner or with your teams in our experience and this is what these 500 conversations I think that must have been even more than the 500 because these happen you know, multiple days of the week and everybody's having them, but people are struggling with them. And so one of, the, one of the things that we've tried to do is to look at it through the eyes of the designer, of the people that know about events, but also look at it through the eyes of the executive. Executive want outcomes, they don't care about process. Don't bother them with process. So how do you talk the language of outcomes? And how can you relate to that, knowing that you have a process to design something and do it so systematically with a team that it's actually fun to do? And that the outcomes of your design process are reliable prototypes that you can present to give choice to your event audience. I think, you know, we talk about being on stage and then going off stage. I would love to take us off stage. Go off stage.